Welcome to Policy Matters. I'm Franz Boscher, and today we're going to be talking about social mobility and why should we care. Joining me to talk about this is Dr. Matt Dixon, who is a reader in public policy at the University of Bath. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Franz. So uh, I guess the first question I and a layman would have is, what is social mobility? What's the kind of, what's all that about? You hear it everywhere, you read it in the news, but is there a definition? Is there something more concrete behind it? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, it's a term that gets uh, talked about quite a lot in the news, in policy. Uh, and generally, I think the understanding of social mobility when it's used uh, in those discussions is really talking about what economists would call intergenerational mobility. So that is thinking about where you start off in life, so what your parents' income, class, education bracket is, yeah. and then ultimately where you then end up. So when you are... Um, prime age, so by the time you're kind of 30, 40, uh, where do you end up in the income distribution? Uh, And that comparison of where you started to where you end up, that's the kind of intergenerational component. And the mobility is, do you you move up the distribution? Do you move to a higher class, a a better occupation, uh, occupational standing than your parents? Or do you stay the same? Do you move down? That's the kind of the mobile aspect. So that's, that's, that's very interesting, and obviously I, I, I'm somebody who, who does a little bit of uh, research in that. And there's an interesting question that I got asked some a couple of years ago to sort of uh, contextualize this a little bit more. And let, let me pose this question to you. What is your personal mobility like? So somebody asked me this years ago and, and, and asked me directly, you know, are you upwardly or downwardly mobile? So what about you, Matt? For me, well, uh, again, so it slightly depends. Uh, uh, broadly downward, I think, oh, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> but um, uh, no, so if you think about uh, occupational mobility, then uh, so my father, if we think generally the, the, the research will look at fathers and sons. That's traditionally how it's looked at. So if I think about my father, uh, he's, he was a, uh, on the board of directors of a large uh, automotive uh, products firm. Okay, fairly high up. Fairly high up. So in the, in the uh, occupational standings, that would be a kind of top-ranking uh, in, in a, a seven-point scale or yeah, something like this. Yeah. So this would be in the top bracket. Academics, I'm not sure. <laughs> I guess academics, uh, so I, as you said, I'm, a, I'm an academic at University of Bath. And academics, I think, are generally in the kind of top couple of brackets, yeah, I, I think suppose. Professional, professional. Professional. So yeah. I think I'd, I'd be probably marginally downward, mo- downwardly mobile in occupational terms. Okay. Um, as we know, unfortunately, academics don't tend to get paid as much as oh, company, disgrace. Disgrace. <laughs> yeah, company directors. And so from an income point of view, then that would be uh, down with mobility. Right. But I think my saving would be on education. So um, both of my parents have degrees and my, and my father has a, a, an MBA, but I stuck the course of uh, undergraduate and master's and PhD. So technically on um, on the education measure, I would be upwardly mobile. Well, that's that's some good news. You're you're smarter than your parents. But it's it's in, it's interesting that you say these different measures because I I was asked this a long time ago and I basically just answered downwardly mobile. So yeah. I have a similar story where my parents, when they were my age, were essentially earning more. Well, my father was definitely earning more money than I'm earning. But uh, after giving that that kind of answer, I realised that actually it's much more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. 
And I have the same story where, you know, from a class perspective, I guess you could mm. say that I'm immobile, income yeah. downward, uh, education or other or occupation, actually, upwardly mobile. So uh, it's kind of, you know, it's the eye of the beholder almost. And we get onto the sort of this sort of more academic side of things now. Mm. What is the measurement variable? So does that really matter sort of? If we're talking about intergenerational mobility, what should we, as people who live in society, but also as academics, what should we care about? How should we measure this? It's an interesting question, and it's one that uh, is discussed and debated not just in, in policy and in society, but in within academia. Uh, and so economists, and we're both economists, we come from that uh, tradition of measuring things in terms of income, right? That's yeah. the kind of... We know what we're doing with numbers like that, and so um, uh, and it's a metric that people can relate to. Whereas uh, I think sociologists will care more about uh, uh, class, right? And so class uh, and whether you move uh, up or down in in class—that's their kind of predominant measure of mobility. And of course, then you can end up with different answers, as we both <laughs> we both have kind of yeah. um, depending on the measure, and they can both give a different picture of what's happening to mobility in the UK. So that's a question that academics will look at. Has social mobility, we hear, you know, has social mobility been getting worse over time? Has it been getting better? Has it stayed the same? And depending on the measure uh, you're looking at, you can answer different things. And th they can both be true, right? So sociologists might think about class mobility yeah. and say nothing has changed, the class structure has stayed broadly the same, people don't move any more or less than in previous generations. Whereas income can be changing, uh, and this could be because the distribution of income within a class is changing. So people can stay within the same class, but move up the income distribution. Yeah. So on the one hand, they've got upward mobility uh, uh, from income, but on the other hand, class-wise, things have just stayed the same, there's been no kind of movement. It's, it's interesting that you say this and I think if I just draw this conversation back to sort of the academic literature and then back to sort of the sort of the policy domain, I think within a wider context sort of in policy and society there's this perception for the last 10 years that things seem to be getting worse, right? Yeah. Um, sort of real wages aren't going anywhere, GDP isn't growing, uh, none of us can afford our own houses uh, while <laughs> renting or living under a bridge or something. And um, and there is this perception that uh, mobility is, is, is stagnating, right? The chances that we used to have are not there anymore. Uh, but if you look at the actual empirical evidence from, from the academics, and certainly that's something I dabbled in for a while, if you look at The Economists, they have shown quite clearly that income mobility, yes, is getting worse. So it is becoming a lot harder to earn more than your parents did, yeah. to move away from your origin, from your parents. But on class, interestingly enough, there's a sociologist called uh, Goldthorpe, John Goldthorpe, yeah. and he's come up with this sort of terminology called the constant flux. And they have this very long running, they've been doing, sociologists have been doing this for since the 1950s, right? And they have shown quite clearly that uh, social mobility really hasn't changed at all, really since the post-war yeah. from a class-based perspective, an occupation-based perspective. Um, so, you know, one does wonder what all, what, what all this hoo-ha is about if, if, if supposedly nothing has changed. Uh, but I guess there's an interesting sort of sub-question here, which relates to this concept of absolute and relative mobility. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's, again, this is one of the things that sometimes gets brought out in discussion, uh, and it's quite, it's, it's quite nuanced. So it's important to think about whether we are talking about absolute mobility, uh, which is really just saying, 
have you improved compared to your parents? Like, how, are you earning more? Are you moving up the income distribution in absolute terms? So how did they do? How do you do? There's a comparison. And in those terms, everybody can have mobility. Everyone can have upward mobility. Because as the economy grows, and traditionally the economy has been growing for, uh, for, for decades at a kind of 2% growth rate of GDP, so everybody's incomes are going up, living standards are raising... That's really been challenged in uh, in recent years. But when the economy is growing, you can have this absolute mobility. Mm. And people think about the golden age, often it's talked about the golden age of social mobility, a kind of post-war period where things just got better, everybody was doing better than their parents. Uh, and this is partly down to the change in the economy, the industrial structure of the economy, and they talk about more room at the top, right? So more jobs were created uh, in the kind of management and upper levels and so it was very straightforward for people to get their education and then move upwards and this is up the, the app yeah up the ladder and that's absolute mobility now the uh, other thing uh, that we would talk about is is relative mobility yeah. and so relative mobility is a bit more uh, of a, a tricky concept to kind of get your head around so relative mobility is thinking about what are the chances of you moving up uh, to a higher level, to another income bracket, and how does that compare to other people who start off in a different place? Okay, so in a in a perfectly mobile society, from a relative mobility point of view, wherever you started, you'd have equal chance to get to the top twenty uh, percent of the distribution, the next twenty percent down, and equal chance to end up in the bottom twenty percent. You'd have perfect equality uh, in that sense. So everyone would have equal chances. It's interesting that you say this because I've actually, I was just before the program, I downloaded some statistics from the uh, from the census where I used to do a bit of work back in the day, <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, on looking at these, exactly what you're talking about, these transition matrices yes. and sort of looking at these probabilities. And if you look at the last census, children, when I say children, these are children of parents, you know, these children are now aged 30. Right. But people who are aged 30 in 2011 and comparing that to their parents when their parents were 30, if you are in the upper upper class, whatever the definition of class here is, yeah. your probability of sinking to the lowest class is only three percent. Right. So it's incredibly tiny, and nowhere near that twenty-five percent. Sure. Yeah, S suggesting there's a lot of stickiness, essentially, in that. And this is this concept of relative mobility, yeah. right? So what is the probability of you moving up and down a class structure conditional on where your parents were? Exactly. And, and it's the kind of concept that is very easy to sign up to in terms of politicians. There's broad consensus that we want to have a mobile society. We don't want your destination to be determined by your origin. So where you start off shouldn't be destiny. It shouldn't determine where you're going to end up. And from that will come the idea, OK, so what we really want is you know, a, a, an equal chance for people to move to the different parts of the distribution. So I think Mostly politicians and policymakers are on board with that idea and it, it resonates with the idea of equality, of opportunity, of fairness. We want everyone to have equal chance. Politically, we run into a slight uh, problem, though, uh, because for, if you're having equal chances, at the moment, the chances, as you've quoted, you know, they're not equal, right? So if you start off in the top 20% or the top 25%, your chance of staying there is very high yes. and your chance of falling from that position further down is, is is low, right? But if we are going to increase the chances of people who start lower down moving up, yeah. you can't have people staying in the top 
and other people moving in. That's exactly right. You know, it's this zero-sum game, essentially, and that yeah. a lot of politicians or political parties, if you look at their manifestos, their statements, they all support this idea. We need more social mobility, more fluidity. Yeah. People should, you know, we want this meritocracy where people's outcomes are a function of the hard work they put into their lives rather than where they were born. But then at the same time, you know, thinking perhaps about the Conservative Party and this whole idea about grammar schools from Theresa May a year ago, um, if you're going to allow relative mobility to improve and you allow children from poorer economic backgrounds to have higher chances of going up the ladder, then at the same time, you must make the chances worse for children at the top to stay in that top. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is the problem because no one, while everyone can sign up to a manifesto commitment to a more mobile society, nobody is going to go to the country saying, we're going to increase the chance that your children fall down the ladder. Yeah. We're going to increase the chance that your children do worse than their parents. And, and you know, the reality is if we are going to improve um, the distribution of children who end up in the top relative to, you know, how it is now, have more people moving up the distribution, you're going to have to have some people moving down. And so politically, even though we sign up to this idea that we want to have a more mobile society, it's very difficult for politicians. And it's a very, um, you know, the concept is not so easy to get across and not so easy for kind of people to realise this is, you know, the implication. And therefore, when policies are proposed that are going to lead to a more kind of mobile society, the people who are already in those top uh, income brackets very fiercely want to defend their position. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting point you make there. And let me ask you, what is your opinion of how sort of social mobility policy has sort of developed in the past, well, past governments, dare I say? I know Nick Clegg presented this, was it white or green paper, where he was really big on social mobility and he wanted to attack it across the life spectrum, you know, at all points from childcare to, you know, schooling, to uh, being in the labor market. And I know you and me attended a conference the other day where employers started to engage with this concept of social mobility and they were talking about the class pay gap, sort of very similar yeah. to the gender pay gap, which I thought was an interesting concept. Um, but it seems to me that uh, there's a lot of talk out there, a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of actually is being done. So what, what's your viewpoint? Yeah, I think we've seen progression in, over the past uh, 20 years or so. So um, Tony Blair was an advocate of mobility. I think he's a politician who understood um, the distinction between relative and absolute mobility um, and started to enact a lot of positive policies. Um, there was the policy to kind of targeting child poverty. And of course, the Social Mobility Commission, which was subsequently set up um, with Nick Clegg and the coalition, uh, that was originally the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission. Okay, So child poverty is kind of always been linked in with uh, social mobility. And it was something that um, Nick Clegg was very passionate about, as you, as you say, and into the coalition in 2010, all policies were being judged against what's the impact on social mobility. Mm. So Nick Clegg was very much a driver behind the idea of we need to think seriously. And as you say, it's not just education. This is, it's across the board. We need to think about how do these policies, whether it's early uh, years, childcare, schools, universities, and then beyond that into the labour market, how do we ensure that we do have a mobile society, we ensure that there aren't barriers that prevent people uh, from different backgrounds accessing jobs and top jobs and then progression within those top jobs. And so policy did get a real uh, boost from the coalition um, 
largely, as I say, driven by Nick Clegg's uh, passion for social mobility. Since then, since 2015, since the Liberal Democrats have no longer been uh, part of the ruling uh, coalition and it's been Conservatives leading the country, unfortunately the kind of push for social mobility has taken uh, a bit of a backseat. And it's not just social mobility. I guess the, one of the problems is that subsequent to the 2015 election, we've then had the EU referendum and and uh, we don't want to go down the, the route of talking about Brexit for a long time. But this is something that is obviously in the policy space is just the dominant feature yeah. right now. And that is not going to change. You know, you talk to people who will say this isn't going to change for 10 years. This is government, the machinery of government, the civil service is going to be taken up with all the issues around Brexit for a long time. And so it's not just social mobility policy that suffers. It's pretty much every area where we need to address things, whether it's education, the NHS, whatever it is. All of these areas are suffering because the machinery of government is tied up uh, with dealing with Brexit. It's very interesting that you say this because there's obviously also quite a literature on sort of trying to identify what kind of mechanisms can we use to improve social mobility? So it's one yeah. one thing figuring out what is the current state of social mobility. It's good or bad or, you know, getting better or worse. Uh, but it's another thing to try and influence it in some way and to move yourself from one position to the other. So I know a lot of the literature, and I've written studies myself on this, look at education as this kind of ma major mediating factor in between yeah. your parents and your personal outcomes. So a lot of government policy and Nick, Nick Clegg's policy was quite focused on, heavy, on education, quite, yeah. quite heavy on that. And um, the assumption there was that chucking all the kids through the education system, Tony Blair kind of started all this. Yeah. Education, 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 education. That will automatically make things better. Now, there's some evidence, including some from myself, that suggests that didn't quite happen and that education is not as strong as a factor in improving the social mobility, and we've got to be very careful here, social mobility of, of children than, than perhaps was anticipated. So is there any kind of, and now that the government is essentially in lockdown with Brexit, mm. is there scope for other ways to, to go forward into the next decade? Yeah, I mean, we hope so, right? I mean, it's kind of bleak to think uh, that government is not going to be able to do anything over the next um, uh, over the next decade. And Last week, the Education uh, Select Committee did a report thinking about social mobility in particular, and their recommendation is, is to try and revamp the Social Mobility Commission, uh, rename it to Social Justice Commission, okay. and think more seriously, getting back really to this Nick Clegg's original idea of every policy in government being judged uh, against the criteria of what's it going to do for social justice uh, or social mobility as the current commission is. So there is some scope there for uh, a revamped uh, Social Mobility Commission to try and have uh, a permanent seat in, in the Cabinet as well, a permanent member of the government to be driving these issues forward. So there's, there's opportunity there. And then there's other policy areas. So while the government's tied up, there are other agents and actors who can be advancing the social uh, mobility of the country. And yeah, as you said, we were hearing from employers at an event a couple of weeks ago in London where employers were talking about their policies and how they are changing their recruitment to try and cast the net further and try and make sure that talent uh, that's out there is harnessed 
and brought into employment and in, I thought, in jobs. I thought that was really interesting, that discussion there about the employers sort of starting to look at this idea of the background you're coming from. A lot of employers, I think, obviously the gender pay gap is quite big in the news right now Absolutely, with yeah. all the stuff coming out. But even, even before this, I would argue that a lot of employers have already kind of gotten into this whole diversity game, not just looking at gender pay, but also looking at your sort of your BME mix in the company and, and other things, uh, really talking about, you know, taking diversity very seriously and what some of them seem to be branching out to now seems to be this idea that okay you can go beyond diversity and start looking at the background of individuals the class background essentially are the the candidates who are applying for jobs are they from better economic backgrounds poor economic backgrounds and I believe some of the employees did mention there that they're removing degree criteria from their entry so that I thought that was really interesting yeah, so the Social Mobility Foundation has a, a, a Social Mobility Employers Index, which is a, a tool that employers can use to kind of grade themselves and benchmark themselves in terms of their practice as to how are they affecting social mobility through their recruitment and, and their practices within um, the firm. And so some of the top employers from this index uh, we heard from, and yeah, they are trying to address social mobility by looking at their recruitment practices, taking it as uh, a challenge to the business, so approaching it like they would any other business challenge, saying, okay, we fear we might not be recruiting all of the talent that is uh, available, and we might be preventing people, putting up barriers, so let's address it and let's see if there's uh, a way in which we can have a broader recruitment and tackle this uh, business challenge. And in doing that and reviewing their uh, recruitment practices, some of these employers were saying, yeah, exactly as you said, our criteria are a bit redundant, actually. And uh, just going on how you look on paper, did you go to university? What degree did you get? What A-levels have you got? What's your work experience? So another way in which uh, barriers can be put up is if you were required to have had an internship whether that's paid or unpaid, if you can't afford to go and live in London unpaid to work in an internship, and it's the internships that then get you the the jobs, uh, this is is a barrier. So these firms have started looking at that, changing their recruitment, getting rid of all these metrics of of traditional academic success and bringing a broader group in to be interviewed and then assessing people then on how do they perform in the interview. And it was interesting, they said... You know, they find that it's performance in interview when presented with real-life scenarios that they might be facing the job. How people perform in the interview is a much better predictor of how people will do in the job than anything to do with their school, their degree, and, and, and that sort of metric. And so this is really positive and really um, exciting because it is an area, if the government's going to be tied up with other policy concerns, employers can really pick up the slack and start taking things forward. And the key thing was... I guess that they found these people who were coming in with non-traditional backrounds for these firms, they were performing equally as well as That's right. I think a lot of, anybody them, all else. of them had very positive experiences about Absolutely. doing this, right? They were all a bit hesitant in terms of should we do this? But the ones who did it came out with really positive experiences and said this is good for our business and we're going to continue and, and double down on this. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting thing. I also thought that perhaps now that um, some of the sort of latest line of research in the field seems to be focusing on regional social mobility. So for many, many years now, the academic community and also the policymakers have focused very much on kind of what's happening at the national stage, yeah. sort of what are the aggregate statistics, but there is sort of new work coming out from America that seems to be suggesting that there's a, you know a, quite a lot of 
variant in how mobile people are across the country. Yeah. So, you know, I guess for the United Kingdom, you have this whole north-south divide. There's this literature that London can be seen as an accelerator in your life. Yeah. People move down, move up the income ladder much quicker than if they were somewhere else. Whether this is true or not, I guess it's still up for debate uh, in the academic community. But, um, you know, do, do local councils, for example, when we, you know, we're looking at sort of more devolved government here, yeah. have, uh, have any scope for doing anything on, on the mobility front? I think local authorities uh, are certainly players within this uh, context that could have a positive effect, especially while central government's kind of tied up. But at the same time, we've had quite a lot of, uh, of cutbacks to local government budgets, so they're struggling really to do more with less. Um, so the local authorities can make a difference, but it's probably going to be quite difficult in in the short term. But I think you're right. Certainly in the policy literature, people are starting to think about the geographic aspect of mobility. So the, the Social Mobility Commission have started talking about cold spots and hot spots for social mobility. And in the academic literature, as you say, people are starting to investigate the role of geography uh, in social mobility and think about not just north-south and traditional rural-urban, but different mobilities, different geographies. So often it's coastal towns and kind of post-industrial urban areas that really suffer. Um, So it's it's a lot more nuanced, uh, I think, than previous uh, literature and and policy has, has taken it. You're exactly right, and I do wonder whether the, the, the quote-unquote solution to all of this is just to reverse the approach and rather do a top-down approach as a bottom-up approach, yes. and maybe that might move things forward over the next few years. Uh, I guess as we're wrapping this up, let me ask you one final question. Um, is it still worth going to university? <laughs> Should we send our kids to grammar school and make sure they get into Oxbridge? Well, I think um, the grammar schools issue is quite an an interesting one. There's a lot of research. It's been a very topical uh, question over the last year or so. Obviously, it was a kind of conservative policy. Theresa May very much behind uh, grammar schools. Boris Johnson very much in favour of grammar schools. Unfortunately, as an agent for kind of social mobility, it's quite difficult because even though children from poorer backgrounds who go to grammar schools do, uh, do well, the vast majority of children who go to grammar schools are not going to be the poorer children. It's going to be children who are already from kind of wealthy families. And even more so uh, in the last week or so, there's been various papers, uh, research papers that have been published and covered that have suggested that actually grammar schools don't really make uh, much difference. Once you take account of the fact that they select, of course, already the most able pupils, they're not really adding value compared to any other school. So I don't think grammar schools is the answer. Going to university, well, the most recent research does suggest that the wage returns to going to university have remained high. So even though there's been a huge expansion in higher education, so the supply of graduates has increased quite a lot, but the economy has been demanding graduates as well. So as supply has increased, demand has increased, and so the actual pay level seems to have held up in the aggregate. But again, there is always a question of, okay, that's the average effect Uh, across all universities, across all courses. It's a lot more uh, heterogeneous. There's a lot of difference along different universities, different courses, uh, and that's something that needs to be kind of unpicked and understood. I think that sounds like a very interesting topic for next time. Many thanks to Matt Dixon for joining me. I'm Franz Buscher, and you've been listening to Policy Matters.